I knew he was a very, very sharp and savvy investor. And Kwong was a good company, and it did beautifully in the early years. Then, quite sadly, Mr. Lee died. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guests, Richard Lawrence. Richard, are you ready to join the mission? Oh, I'm delighted to be here with you, Andrew, and delighted to help contribute a little bit to your community. I appreciate that. And as you hear, I'm on a mission, and that mission is very simple, to try to reduce risk in the lives of a million people. And a lot of people scoff at me, and I know I'm, I'm far from getting there, but man, I'm, I'm a quarter of the way there, having now gotten more than 250,000 downloads, and I just keep pushing and want people to get the message. There's so much we can learn from the stories of others, so that's the key. Let me introduce you to the audience. For those people that don't know, Richard H. Lawrence Jr. is the founder and executive chairman of Overlook Investment Group, an independent fund management company established in Hong Kong in 1991. Overlook invests $6 billion in a concentrated portfolio of public equities throughout Asia, excluding Japan. Richard and his wife, Dee, have founded several nonprofit organizations. He's a philanthropist who is devoted to climate change and other fantastic missions. And he has two grown kids and lives in San Francisco, California. Richard, just take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Well, I'm a fairly modest, humble guy. I've always found the investment business to be incredibly humbling, so I don't like to get over my skis. But I, I think what I've been able to accomplish is to really help simplify investing. I wrote about it in my book called The Model, and particularly as I get older, the investing world gets easier. So for all those people mired in complexity over how to invest, I think my book might be of some assistance. Beyond that, I'm, I'm a very modest guy, and I am committed, as I think we all need to be, to fighting climate change, which is, I, I think, the issue of our day. Mm. And I've got the book right here, The Model. I bought it about six months ago and went through it in a pretty short amount of time. I mean, I was really interested. It's not that common that you get books written by investment experts that really go through the details of what you're doing. And I think that was the value that I got. I felt like there was some great nuggets in there. And, you know, one of the things is the concentrated portfolio, as we mentioned earlier, that, you know, you're not trying to match the market or do anything like that. You're trying to identify a small number of companies that you think have good opportunities. And I just wanted to highlight a couple of quick things. So for the listeners out there, there's four points to the Overlook investment philosophy. And I'm looking at page 68 on the book. I'll have a link in the show notes. But on page 68, it talks about superior businesses, management with integrity. It also talks about number three, bargain valuations, and then long-term investment horizon. In some ways, this is like the dream for a lot of young people that want to build a future in investing. 
And one of the questions I had about number three, the bargain valuations, which you go through some of the calculations that you do and the ways that you look at it. But one question I have for you is that how do you how do you deal with the situation where let's take TSMC, which you've also done a great case study in the back. And I've used that in my valuation masterclass to work with my students to help understand this particular company and how you looked at it. But when it comes to TSMC, as an example, there's times that that company could be really expensive and yet it ticks all the other boxes. And I'm just curious, and you do mention that your formulas are kind of a guide and a framework. How do you deal with that when, you know, obviously great companies aren't going to come at, you know, a seven times PE. I'm just curious about that one aspect before we go into a couple of other things. Yeah, I, I think that this is why I enjoy bear markets, that they give us these opportunities to get these things really cheaply. And at other times, I think I have a visceral dislike of big bull markets because they're taking everything away. And as I say, the wrong people are making the money. I think there are a couple of things that are useful. One is rebalancing. I think, you know, when when you own a stock for a long period of time, you just feel when it's right up at the top of its cycle. And that's when you peel it back, take some money off the table. And then naturally, when it comes back down, you have that money and you can put it back in. I think that's one thing that's very useful. The other thing that we found very useful is looking at the valuation characteristics of our portfolio and comparing each stock against the dollar weighted averages of our portfolio. And so, Andrew, if you come to me and say, I got a stock at 25 times earnings, it's got a 12% return on equity and it's growing at 12%. Well, I would come back to you, why would I own that? Because my portfolio is at 16 times earnings, growing at 13% with a 19% return on equity. So that monitoring what you're buying or what you're selling compared to your overall portfolio, I've always felt just you can take steps which nudge the portfolio in the right direction. That's interesting because most people would do it just the opposite way. They'd compare that stock to the rest of the world and the, the universe of all the stocks. But you're basically saying, I don't care about all the stocks. What I care about is how does this enhance or add value to this portfolio or not? And so that's a great one. I also noticed that in the book, you mentioned that it was the rebalancing that may have prevented you from selling the TSMC stake or other stakes. And so, you know, on the one hand, the rebalancing is kind of a tool that people sometimes think about. But what you mentioned here and what you've mentioned in the book is the idea that it may save your butt. Just when you're thinking, you know, I got to do something big. Well, no, you don't have to do something big. What you need to do is maybe consider rebalancing. Just tell us about that aspect for just a moment. Well, I think selling is much harder than buying. Mm. Okay. We can all get a consensus around, oh, we got to buy this, right? Selling is much harder because specifically, you know, these stocks, which you have to sell, have done extremely well. And so rebalancing is not selling. There's no emotion to it. It's remarkable. It's a completely non-emotional event. You're just taking some money off the table. So that helps. There are other times, Andrew, when you get what we call tomorrow's price today, where you pull the trigger and sell the whole thing. Mm. You know? And then there are versions, you know, other ways that we sell securities, probably most commonly when we realize we've made a mistake. Otherwise, when fundamentals of an industry are really changing in a company, which was in a sweet spot, it's not, where, or where we go from a deflationary environment to an inflationary environment and things change. But again, go back, the rebalancing is great because there's no great argument on the investment committee about doing it. We're just, we're just pulling it back. 
Yeah, that's that's great. And that's a great nugget for the people who are managing their own portfolios out there. One other thing you mentioned earlier, you were talking about how market downturns provide opportunities to enter at you know a good price. Is that what investing is about, is identifying the right targets through your system and all that, having a long enough time frame that you are waiting for the opportunity and then you strike? Or is that just a port, a small part of the overall thing? I think you can't paralyze yourself and wait for the one in every 10 year bear market to roll Mm. into town and where you load up all that cash. It just doesn't work that way. What bear markets can give you though, are opportunities to invest in stocks that are going to get you better IRRs than if you buy a stock in a normal year. And it doesn't even have to be a greater company than the ones you buy in a normal year. But just because you bought it in a bear market gives you that chance for really big IRRs. So you can't miss. And the trouble that a lot of people run into is they take in a lot of money at the top, Andrew. Then when the bear market hits, a lot of that hot cash leaves. The fund manager then has to sell his crown jewels. And so when stocks are down, he doesn't have the capital. And so this comes back to business practices, which we talk a lot about in the book, right? But one of the business practices we follow, which has been incredibly valuable, is we've had a legal cap on subscriptions right from day one. That's precluded investors from coming in, hot money coming in at the top. Then we don't have to replace them, you know? And some people will always get caught and will have to be replaced, but we generally keep a backlog because of the cap. And that allows us in a bear market, you just keep moving forward. You buy and stocks go down, you buy and stocks go down, you buy and stocks go down. You can't buy at the bottom. And even the first leg up, you don't buy very much because you're saying, well, you caught me three times already. I'm not going to get caught again. So you have to, by definition, you have to buy early and often in these bear markets. And that's specific to bear markets. And the rest of the time, you just keep trying to buy the best possible companies you can. Give them a year um, and a half to prove their value and you either kick them out or you you stay with you. Yeah. In the book, you talk about how you kind of stumbled on this through your meeting with one of your first investors. I believe his name was Crosby, as I recall. Yeah, Crosby Smith. Yeah. But the idea, so let's just review this for the listeners who may not understand this. The idea is, is that an individual, a particular investor, a family or family office or whatever, has a limit as to how much that they can put in so that what happens is that if the market starts really racing up, they're tempted to just dump more cash into it. And this prevents that cash from coming in. And that basically is kind of saying, I'm trying to protect you, number one, from rushing in at the peak, go do that somewhere else. And also what I'm trying to do is protect the portfolio from not being awash with cash that will then be pulled from us at some other point. Let me ask you, in the down cycle, is it just the sentiment that, hey, I've got a limit as how much I can buy, so I'm not going to sell in the down cycle? Or is there any other guidelines when the market goes down for the client? Well, I think for us, we just manage the portfolio. We think about that. Usually when in big bear markets, there's what we call change of leadership. And we might own a perfectly good stock, but if it's not in that change of leadership category, we will sell it and buy something better. Mm. And so we're going to do everything, walk in every day and just keep moving forward on it. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And the cap, 
has really helped go back to the cap. The cap has really helped us have really stable clients, stable capital, because the worst thing that happens is, you know, you hit the bear market and everybody's running for cover. You just, (laughs) whatever you do, you got to avoid it. And likewise at the top over the last five years, we've returned a couple of billion dollars, which is also what you should be doing. Yeah. And I think that's the last thing I want to say about the discussion about the book is just, you know, what you could describe as customer first is kind of what you're thinking when you talk about time weighted versus cap weighted return and trying to understand how do clients lose, you know, so commonly by allocating at the wrong time and by, you know, and how do funds have to deal with the inflows and outflows? And so, you know, what I get the impression of is that you're balancing not only your benefits to you guys and your team and you know you need to be paid you need to be compensated but also balancing that with how do we bring the most to the customer so that's part of what i'm getting from what you're putting out in the book well when i was young starting out and really didn't know a whole lot i just wanted to compete money has never been the motivator mm. i just wanted to compete and i was competing in a world where i had no natural advantage which i really liked And so for me to cap the size of the fund in the early days and to keep it capped for long periods of time, it wasn't a big deal. It just allowed me to do what I love to do for 32 years rather than whatever the average life is of an Asian fund manager, you know, so... For the listeners out there, I'll have a link in the show notes. You can also go to themodel.com. You can also go on Amazon or other places and get it. And for me, it was a nostalgia a little bit. I first came to Asia when I graduated university at Cal State Long Beach before I went to work at Pepsi in Los Angeles. And it was 1989. I I was planning to go to, to Japan, Thailand, and Hong Kong. And because it was May 1989, I think it was, so we had the Tiananmen Square protest going on in Hong Kong. So I decided just to, I was in Japan and then I was in Thailand when the protests were going on. So I decided to stay in Thailand for an additional week and that knocked me out. I ended up falling in love with Thailand and I came to Thailand in 1992. I became an analyst in 93. But when I look at, you know, the stories that you're telling and how China was just, you know, people ask me, why didn't you go to China? There was just nothing happening there at that time. So listening to your stories about, and for the listeners out there, you know, listen to some of these stories about seeing a a landscape that's basically empty. And then, you know, three years later, or even a year later, you come back and it's, you know, a whole nother place. And so it was definitely nostalgia those days going to Hong Kong, been to your office. I know James Squire, and I really appreciated him. He was one of the first guys that I met in the old days when he was at Barings in 1995 or so. I was there with visiting him as a, as a bank analyst. And so for me, it was a trip down memory lane. And so I really appreciate that. And I, I would say to all the listeners and viewers out there, get it. It is a, not only one of the seminal books now that I would say about portfolio management and about stock selection, but also a little bit of the history of what the heck's going on from the inside with the management of these companies in China and throughout Asia. So well done. Thank you for that. Yep. Appreciate it. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story, which I think you're going to grace us with some of the story that you've put into the book. Well, to set the stage, it was 1992. I was just out of the gate. I had 
discovered that stocks in Korea were incredibly cheap. I owned everything at two, three, four times earnings. I owned a hair dye company. I owned all kinds of oddball companies. And within that mix, there was one company that stood out that was really different. Korea at the time had massive debt, and there was one company that didn't. And so I I was immediately attracted to that company. And this is the story of Richard Lawrence's investment in Taekwong Industrial Company. So we purchased our shares in Taekwong originally in 1992. At the time, Taekwong was the largest synthetic fiber producers in South Korea, made spandex. It was a formidable company going from strength to strength. It became our largest holding by 93, strongest one of all this cohort of Korean companies that we owned and the second largest holding in our portfolio. It was founded by one of the great titans of the Asian textile industry. Most of these guys came out of Hong Kong and China. Well, Mr. Lee Yong came out of Korea. He was a larger-than-life figure in a manner unlike any other business leader in Korea in the lead-up into the Asian financial crisis when Korea went bust. He was a nonconformist in culture that admires conformity. I remember one day and I went down to Ulsan to look at their massive new petrochemical facility. And during a visit to the office, I noticed there was a Mercedes Benz sitting out front of the entrance. You have to understand that in 1993 or 94, it was practically a crime in Korea at that time not to be buy a Korean vehicle. So it caught my eye. Of course, it was Mr. Lee's car. He would drive any kind of car that that guy wanted to drive. No one had anything on him. That was one of the reasons his company had no debt. He had the confidence and independence of one who knew how to run a company for cash flow. Just as Mr. Lee disliked debt, he also disliked paying taxes. And so how did he do this? Well, he was the most aggressive depreciator of any executive I have ever encountered in Asia or anywhere else. He would build a, in one case, he built a $400 million facility. He depreciated over two and a half years. Then he revalued it and depreciated a second time. I mean, what a stud. And what this did was he minimized reported profits in order to minimize taxes, using the cash savings to avoid the debt. He liked it that way. And I liked it too. I could do my homework, even though the audited financial statements were always only available in Korea, but they were so cookie cutter. When I translated one set of Korean accounts, I had them all translated. And kankasan, which is the only Korean word I know, was depreciation. But I knew he was a very, very sharp and savvy investor. And Taekwong was a good company, and it did beautifully in the early years. Then... Quite sadly, Mr. Lee died, and that was a start of problems. Control passed to his son, Ho Jin Lee. Upon becoming CEO, Ho Jin suffered from obviously a bad inferiority, <laughs> an inferiority <laughs> complex. To be fair to Ho Jin, he probably suffered from other things as well yeah. with his very domineering father. But he was immediately challenged by 97, 98 when Korea went bust. The stock got hammered as did all stocks. And despite that, you know, Overlook, I'm a pretty stubborn guy. I thought, well, let's teach this guy. And we thought we could help him be successful. And we worked on it from 97 to 2000. During and after the Asian financial crisis, we repeatedly discussed the things that I think are important, which are corporate governance and capital management. 
with him and his team. We called for greater transparency of financial statements, moderation of policies, understating the true earnings. And we asked for the inception of paying dividends. Without these steps, we felt as we communicated to the management that the share price was going to continue to go nowhere. And Ho Jin and his yes men that surround him always nodded and they appreciated the advice, Richard. That's very nice. And then they sent me on my way. <laughs> so by, by 2000, you know, now granted, I had just pulverized the investment by all my limited partners. I was on a little bit of pressure. You know, we'd gone down something like 65% in the Asian crisis. I wasn't managing a lot of money. I had two kids, an apartment in Hong Kong, which was expensive, and I needed Taekwong to perform. So by 2000, with no concrete action taken by management and no upward movement, sadly, in the stock, my patience wore thin. Do we sell? Can we force the company to act responsibly and change dead-end policies to achieve a better share price? Well, then one day, Taekwong made the decision for us. Hojin heir to his father's company, but not to his ability, nor his strength of character, crossed a red line. And he blatantly undertook an unfair related party transaction that effectively bailed out an insurance company that was owned by the family with the cash from Taekwon. And so we acted. And here's a little excerpt from my report. You can feel a little sense of desperation in my voice <laughs> as I'm trying to justify what I'm doing in these early days of Overlook. This is our most recent, but by no means our only action on defending fiduciary interests of the Overlook investors occurred recently when we hired a shareholder rights lawyer in Korea to communicate our views to the directors of Taekwong Industrial, a company or Taekwong Industrial in a more forceful manner, shall we say. The formal step was triggered by the acquisition of commercial building from a life insurance company owned by the controlling shareholders, a flagrant transfer of wealth from Taekwong to offset the family's losses. The acquisition took place gallingly no less than two weeks after two members of the senior management team assured my lawyer and me during a meeting that no such transaction would ever take place. So we, at that time, requested a reverse of the acquisition. We asked them to initiate paying cash dividends. We asked them to execute a series of share splits, establish an IR department, and appoint additional directors that might actually be at least partially independent. The cash cost to take one for all this stuff is pretty small. It was, it was really more symbolic, you know? So... <laughs> we proposed a shareholder resolution. And this is where it gets a little technical, but it's kind of cute. In 2001, to elect my lawyer at the time as a, quote, outside auditor. Now, this was a special category, but the role of the outside auditor was exactly as an independent director. So it was a beautiful loophole. And the key to the loophole was that under Korean law, the controlling Lee family couldn't vote. So it was Actually, it truly, for the first time in my history in Asia, it was truly a vote of minority shareholders. All we needed was 51%, and I was getting my lawyer on the inside. And he had all told me privately that, look, if I get on the inside, people are going to jail. You know, it's just, that's the way it is in Korea. So literally, days before the vote, Taekwong, sensing the shareholder revolt, realized that they might well lose. Then through either incompetence or a coincidence or something else, 
the largest internationally managed Korea fund cast the deciding vote against us. I found that particularly galling because the Korea fund had been victimized in Korea more than any other foreign investor by the corporate governance abuses in Korea. I mean, this was a very undeserved loss at a very tough time in Richard Lawrence's life. And it was an unfortunate loss for Overlook, the limited partners, and, and ultimately all shareholders in Korea. And so a week later, after I lost the vote, I was on the front page of the newspaper as a villain. I was in my, my office in central Hong Kong, and I got a call from the lawyer who had informed me that a high-ranking official within the government of Korea had called him. And evidently, the government of Korea was unhappy with my nonconformist advice. And the government asked him, my lawyer, to pass along the message that Mr. Lawrence was no longer welcome to come back to Korea. I then turned to my lawyer to tell, to ask him to call the official back and to tell him that Overlook Investments had no longer any interest in returning to Korea anyway. And so the story actually has a bit of a couple of happy endings. About six years ago, maybe six years after this had happened, I had a client of mine who was in Korea. He was on a business trip involved with his animal trap business, which is another subject. He faxed me a newspaper article that described how Ho Jin Lee, the son of the founder, had been convicted of defrauding Taekwon and was pleading for leniency. They actually wheeled him in into the courtroom, tied up to an IV machine looking all ragged, and yet he was all of about 47 at the time. But what makes Hojin a especially deserving of our vilification even today was that his scheme to defraud Taekwon ended up convicting his mother as well. <laughs> now, God. as I write, Ho Jin Lee is back in jail now. He went to jail, got out of jail. He's back in jail a third time. And I was very delighted to send a signed copy of my book to Ho Jin through his lawyer to be delivered to him in jail, which was one of the great pleasures and the, fulfills, Andrew, the old saying that revenge is best served slow or <laughs> it's a meal best served cold, you know, yeah. so. So anyway, um, Taekwong ended up costing me 15% compounded and just a mountain of angst. Yeah, so. and I think one of the things that for the listeners out there, you touched on it, but you didn't elaborate. But it's important to understand what was happening in Asia to everybody's portfolio at that time. So this was like, as you said, you were in, had a backdrop of everything kind of collapsing. I I started in the time market in 93 and the bottom of the time market was 2003. We went from 1789 to 211, and it took a long time, and it took a lot of suffering over that time. So meanwhile, you're sitting on a portfolio that's not performing, that's losing value, and then you got this going on, and you know you talked about an expensive flat in Hong Kong, you got the kids and the wife and all that. Those backdrops are emotional pressures that people don't realize. Well, what particularly galls me was Taekwong had no debt. Korea went bust because everyone, every one of those chables, the top 25 chables, every one of them, except for Taekwong, had debt. And here I was getting crucified, you know. So anyway, it brings back bad, very bad memories, Andrew. Well, the point, the, the point that you make about how he, how he didn't have debt meant that he also had this huge opportunity when everything was going south 
to not have debt in 1998, you know, in Asia was just unheard of. So how would you summarize for the listeners out there? What are the lessons that you learned? <laughs> well, one thing I definitely learned, and we've been very activist throughout our time. And I learned that being activist publicly didn't help me in this case. Mm. So I think that all our activism today is all very private and confidential, all direct to the chairman and CEO. And we're just trying to have open and honest conversations with those people on issues of corporate governance and capital management. And we do it privately and respectfully. And, and I think it's better. We tried it in this case. You know, he just refused to engage. And when they refuse to engage, the best exit is get out of the stock. I guess that's the other lesson. I pushed i tried too hard you know i was just but you got to understand it had no debt and it was at two times earnings i thought it's give me four times earnings and i'll be gone mm. and what would be the lesson about the change in management i remember my my sister went through a divorce and her lawyer that she had he got sick and he had some big problems going on in his life she felt kind of sorry for him so she kept him and she ended up with an awful settlement and it made me realize, like, you know, that sometimes when things are going south, you really, really have to bite the bullet and say, I got to get out of this. What would have changed if you came across that situation now? How would you handle that differently? Well, you know, give me a stock at two times earnings. I'm going to make a bid to try to do something, you know, because there aren't a lot of stuff at two times cash flow. Yeah. But, you know, in every case, a lot of Overlook's work is engaging with management. We're asking them questions. We're trying to learn about the business, but we're also probing them on how they are as people. We're probing them on how did they behave in 07, 08, or if they're around in 97, 98, how did they get their business funded and off the ground? How have they treated shareholders in the past? How do they talk to me? You know, I, I walk in, I'm a kid from New York, you know, I mean, today, lots of people know lots of people from New York. But when I walked in in 1992 into Seoul, Korea, there weren't a lot of yeah. there weren't a lot of people like me walking around Asia, mm. and especially asking tough questions. I guess my one takeaway is that activism as an activist type of shareholder has its limits. And the limit can be if the other side's not receptive of it. You've got to, at some point, detect that, that you can't change yeah. the world. You've given your efforts, your best efforts, and they may not be interested in what you say no, for, and, for, and, for reasons and, that you may not even really know. Well, and, and that's not our fault. That's his fault or her fault. You know, yeah. I've had meetings where I asked a Singaporean guy who was very well respected, you know, I asked him to do some stuff for us, you know, that was mm. right down Main Street of corporate behavior. And I remember at the elevator, I put my hand out to shake his hand and I, I look at it, what? And I got to shake my hand. Really? And boy, I was out of that stock the next day. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one thing I've always liked about activism is that you do are able really to peel back and see what what the executives really think. But it's it's tough lift. It's not yeah. for everybody. So I want to ask you a question. I mean, like I teach a lot of young people how to value companies, build portfolios and, you know, a lot of foundational stuff. And a lot of them have a dream of doing what you've done. But some of them are just going to build their own portfolios and manage those over a long period of time and maybe do a job as an engineer or, you know, something like that. And I wonder if you could, in a nutshell, give wrap up from everything that you've learned 
into some kind of core principles. I mean, they're not going to be able to be activists. They're not full-time analysts analyzing, going, visiting companies. They have some limits, but there is some value to owning a diversified portfolio of stocks over a long period of time. What would be one or two pieces of advice that you would give that person who's constructing their own personal portfolio of stocks? Well, I, I think there are three or four, right? First one is avoid the debt. The debt's yeah. not going to do you any good. The second thing, avoid what's really the flavor of the month. When it's on the front page of the newspaper all the time, you can't be in that stock. You just you got to leave it for someone else. Third, I really spend a lot of time looking at what we call operating return, which is EBIT over the operating net assets of the business. That's the purest way to measure profitability. And that number should be high. The higher it is, the better it is. And then the other one is I'm a big believer in modest self-finance growth. And so we we talk about a normalized growth rate. You know, I said at the beginning, it was about 13% today. Companies that have high operating returns that grow at 13% make wonderful investments because they throw off cash flow and they can pay you dividends. You'll get your dividends. You'll get your growth. They'll make a few acquisitions and, and there's a big margin of safety in it. And so when you put those two together, you just got to watch out about valuation. You got to be disciplined. And so some of the things we talked and, about earlier, and Andrew. For that individual that would probably find it difficult to have a portfolio of 20 some stocks because they just, it's just overloading for them, but it wouldn't be wise for them to own one or two. What do you think would be a reasonable balance? For I, them? I, I think the, I think statistically the minimum they should own is 12. Okay. Yep. And we own 20 to 22. And I just think it makes life more interesting than if it was just 12. Mm, okay, fantastic. Uh, that let's just review. First, avoid debt. Number two, avoid the flavor of the month. Don't get sucked into you know what's on the front page of the newspaper. Look for companies that have strong operating return. You talked about EBIT divided by the operating capital of the business, and also you talked about modest growth. Don't look for something that's just like off the charts. You know, if we can deliver a good operating return with a modest level of growth. And you can build a portfolio of roughly 12 companies of that and and rebalance maybe over on a kind of a regular basis, maybe every six months, every 12 months or something like that. It sounds like that is golden advice for a young person that is building a stock portfolio. Anything else you would add to that? No, I think if you do that, I, I agree that rebalancing every six months is an absolute must. You effectively take some money off your winners, give it into your losers, and would that it, makes would sense it, too. Would it make sense for a like this type of person that we're talking about to try to kind of aim for an equal weighting of these 12 stocks? And therefore, when it starts to get out of that, they start to reduce one and bring another one back up to equal? Or should they be saying, no, 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 I'm really convinced in these three in this portfolio. So I think you can have a distribution where you have conviction. The difficulty for investors is, is that don't let the conviction equal, oh, the stock went up a lot last month. Mm. You know, it's got to be more grounded. So then, oh. then, you know, the emotion of, of the stock business is one of the things that really negatively impacts people. So stay cool. What's a resource that you'd recommend? I mean, obviously the book is... Number one, is there any other thing besides the book that would help people to think about picking stocks and the like? Well, I think there are a massive number of resources 
that are out there today that didn't exist. This whole podcast thing. I was just in Florida with Ted Seides, a capital allocator who I know has been a guest on your thing. I think Ted's podcasts are also valuable, maybe not for the small retail investor, but they're useful resources. You can kind of pick and choose who you want to listen to. My advice is also books. I'm just a avid reader of investment books. And there are a lot of really good ones out there. If you, you can't find them, you start with Buffett's letters, and then you go to John Train's books. And, and you begin to, as you read more and more investment books, you're beginning to find your cousins. Mm. And your cousins will give you the lessons that you need to learn that are most helpful for you. Yeah, I mean, just even right there, going to Buffett's stuff is just a great start. And that could keep you busy for a year or two, just going back to annual reports and the things that he said. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to hear my interview with Ted Seides, that's episode 129. That was back in 2019, but it was a a great one. So I think that's, there's so many great resources. I know for me, I think about my book collection back in the old days, you know, we didn't have much bookstores in Thailand in 93 when I was trying to figure out how to understand investing. So everywhere I went, I brought back books basically. So I have books on my shelf that I carried from Hong Kong, Singapore, UK, and other places. So books are so, so valuable. Well, listeners, There you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Richard, I want to thank you again for joining the mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I'm I'm delighted that you do this. I think that the more young people, beginners in this industry can learn, you know, the tough lessons that we all went through. I think it's a great idea for a podcast and I'm delighted to have been on it, to have been invited and uh, support you 100%. Well, we appreciate that. And I just want to tease out one last thing from this discussion that Richard said. We didn't talk much about it, but he talked about debt. And I think that in this world of over-debted governments and over-debted companies in a lot of cases and low interest rates and all that, let's not forget that one of the top risks that management face is debt. And so keep your eye on debt. If you can find a company that has no debt, great, low debt, that's fine. But keep an eye on that, one of the number one risks out there. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission, Richard, to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.